New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Prayer can influence our state of mind, which then has an effect on our state of body. Prayer is a portal that connects us with Divine Source and is an intensely personal journey inward as well as an act of conversation with the presence of the infinite or what some call God. We wonder then, who is truly hearing our prayers? Also, what constitutes an effective prayer and how should we pray? Living a prayerful, self-aware life can lead to an act of concern for others. It can help us to move from primarily secular, materialistic life into a more spiritual one, and its rewards can be vast and deep because prayer brings us closer to the divine both within and without. And this is what we'll be exploring today with our guest, Rabbi Paul J. Citron. Rabbi Paul J. Citron has served various congregations as a rabbi for over 40 years. He's now retired from the pulpit, but continues to teach in synagogues and community centers. He's the author of several books, including I Am My Prayer, a memoir and guide for Jews and seekers. Join us for the next hour as we explore the power of prayer with our guest, Rabbi Paul J. Citron. I'm speaking with Rabbi Citron from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's a pleasure to be uh, not just a listener, as I frequently am, but a participant. Oh, goody. Isn't that wonderful? I know you live uh, near Albuquerque, and uh, you can hear us uh, from the local station there. Uh, thank you so much. I want to ask you a little bit about your your lineage. Um, I, I, I think I remember your father was a rabbi and maybe your grandfather, and I'm just wondering... Um, your personal story, did you imagine yourself becoming a rabbi as a, as a Justin, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I said somewhere along the way, um, but actually, um, my father and my grandfather, and to my knowledge, great-grandparents on the paternal side, 
who came from uh, the Russia-Poland area, um, were what were known as Yiddish socialists. There were Jews in the 19th century who believed that socialism and communism would solve humanity's problems and anti-Semitism. And part of being Yiddish socialist meant they weren't religious. Uh, I'm not sure that my grandfather ever set foot in a synagogue. And um, as I say in the book, my parents joined a, a congregation, a liberal or a reform congregation in the early 1950s. Um, but there were no rabbis in my family. What you may have picked up on is that my eldest son is a rabbi married to a rabbi, and they share a congregation in Westwood, Massachusetts. I see, I see. And so when did you first discover that that was your calling? Well, let me tell you, first of all, that my father, uh, my late father, whose name was Herb Citron, um, was a pioneer in valet parking for hotels and restaurants throughout Southern California. And he was so well known that NPR did a spot on him some years ago and then replayed it upon his death. But having uh, taken note of his notoriety, Justine, uh, let me just say that uh, I could I could have gone into his business. I just never saw much fulfillment or point to that. So I said to you, my parents joined a synagogue in the early 50s. I was a first grader. And uh, I have my theories about this, but let me just say that I felt very connected to the people at the synagogue, uh, to the Jewish history and customs I was learning. And uh, so I never lost that feeling as I grew up. And frankly, I think whatever I would have done professionally would have been uh, uh, people connected. So by going into the rabbinate gave me an opportunity to combine my love for Judaism and Jewish culture with working with people. Let's just jump into prayer. Um, many of our listeners are regular meditators and mm -hmm. maybe meditate daily or at least in some regular form. Why do you consider it important to add having a regular prayer life as different from meditation? Well, uh, first of all, uh, there's nothing wrong with meditation. And there's a whole long Jewish tradition of meditation also. And sometimes that is a useful gateway to getting into more formal, let's say, communal uh, prayer. Um, I mentioned in the book that one of the uh, ancient rabbis used to uh, tell his students that before he went to pray, he prayed for an hour that he would be able to pray because uh, it's not something you can do at the drop of, of a hat. Maybe I should say right from the start, there's an interesting translation of the Hebrew verb to pray, which is lehit palel, which actually means to judge oneself. So that suggests that part of the role of prayer, part of the process is self-reflection and self-evaluation. And so uh, when I sit in a service, assuming I am focused and attentive, I am reading in the liturgy 
various value statements that might make me wake up and say, am I, am I living this way? Am I doing X or Y? Am I complying with this? That doesn't mean I'm not reaching out to a source greater than me, but I'm also measuring my life with, with the yardstick of, of Jewish values. So you're saying that prayer, I mean, I think of prayer as um, the, the different kinds of prayer, let's say uh, gratefulness, like that's a prayer that, that I do. I am grateful today and I might pray for the various things or mention in this prayerful way, the things that I'm grateful for. Yes. So is that kind of a self-reflection uh, with the, in that, would that count as self-reflection? Yes. Oh, I think absolutely. But let me say, Justine, I really think that prayer is kind of a two-directional effort. So when I said uh, that the Hebrew word means to judge yourself, that's uh, looking at oneself facing inward. But uh, insofar as one believes that uh, there is a, a divine presence, a divine spirit that sustains all, I'm also reaching out in my prayer toward that. You know, somebody asked me recently in talking about this, well, does God really need your prayers of praise and thanks? And, you know, in my theology, I would say, no, God, God does not need that, but I need it. And, and by expressing praise, that is a kind of thanks, maybe at the highest level. It is making me aware of, of what we have. For example, in our home, uh, at least before dinner, uh, we say a, uh, a Hebrew grace. It's one sentence, and uh, it could become rote. Blessed are you, eternal our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. When I focus on the content, and I don't just say it in a rote fashion, I am actually thinking of the divine power that makes for the possibility of sunshine and rain and photosynthesis and productive earth and farmers laboring and getting uh, wheat ground and milled and baked and brought to market. Um, I have to think about those things if I am, let's say, spiritually plugged in and say I am really fortunate and blessed uh, to have this food on the table when I know very well there is uh, uh, food poverty in this country, and not everybody uh, has it or could say it, not to mention Africa and South Asia and so forth. So when I talk about prayer as also being self-critical, when I think about those things, I have to say, um, did we donate to Roadrunner Food Bank this month here in New Mexico? Have we helped in some way? So it's not just prayer as an abstraction. It has to come back, I think, Justine, and um, help me address uh, my whole life. I'm wondering um, if prayer is innate in children. I can think of my own childhood, and I can't remember anyone who taught me this prayer. But as a very, very young child, before I'd go to sleep, I would do the now I lay me down to sleep. Uh -huh, sure. 
And in that prayer, at the end of that prayer, it was almost superstitious for me. Uh, I would say at the very end, and God bless. And I would go through every single name of every single relative I had. And, and I could not go to sleep until I did that prayer. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about the innate quality of, of children to be very open to prayer? Well, I, I think it's definitely there. You know, in the book, I Am My Prayer, I talk, uh, I use a certain amount of metaphor. And uh, I like the idea of the impulse to pray as being like a spark of light within each of us. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody necessarily is compelled to access that spark, but many of us do. And I think it's there from a very young age, and it grows and matures as we do in so many ways. And that that spark is the divine source, uh, which is outside of us, but also inside of us, uh, that uh, if we are awake and if we are um, attentive, we can strive to connect to uh, through prayer. And, um, you know, I suppose uh, in what you're saying, there's a certain uh, element of that that's a little bit rote and, as you said, maybe a little superstitious, but it's also very comforting. And I have to tell you, I, I do something similar to that myself to this day. <laughs> very nice, very nice. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he is the author of I Am My Prayer, a memoir and guide for Jews and seekers. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he is the author of I Am My Prayer. And when you say the impulse to pray, I'm still wondering, all right, for those people who are not in any sort of formal religion or affiliation of any sort of tradition, what would you say to them? What is prayer? Well, that is a wonderful question, and uh, because somebody is not necessarily affiliated doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a spiritual sense or that they don't pray. Um, and I know plenty of people who are affiliated with synagogues who have a heck of a time 
with prayer uh, nonetheless. So it's not it's not quite that parallel. But I I would say, for me, prayer is number one, a reaching out to my source, the divine. Um, number two, it is a reflection on the Jewish ethical values that are expressed in our prayer book. And number three, and this is quite important, even though I'm calling it number three, and that is public prayer in community enlarges me and also I enhance the experience of others. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to add, Justine. Um, uh, I happen to... Uh, feel that my my personal definition of God isn't uh, a being on a throne way out there by any means. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew name for God, which sometimes we see written with English letters as Y-H-W-H. Have you seen that before? Definitely. Sometimes pronounced Yahweh, Yahweh, etc. The root of that word, is to be or to exist. And what is that trying to express? That God is the grounding of all being and everything exists has a spark of the divine within it. So that includes me and whether I pray or not, it's there. But if I pray, it's my attempt to remind myself that I am connected to the ultimate source of being. And the, and the ethical side is, if I if I feel that or think that about myself, there can be no doubt you have the same spark, and I have to uh, respect you and treat you uh, lovingly and fairly because you also have that spark. That's that's a beautiful definition of God. You know, for for me, I've been searching for my own personal definition of God for a long time, and my current one is. Um, God is the quantum field of infinite intelligence and love, Ugh. a divine, responsive, and dynamic co-creative force of energy in which all life is embedded, including us, a force that exists within everything, enlivens everything, and from which everything is made manifest. So I think that, that is, if you don't mind my reacting, I think that is a a beautiful and concise statement. Um, and, and, you know, one of the points I wanted to bring out with some of what I've said is, obviously, I, a rabbi, am writing from the context of Jewish prayer culture. But I hope our listeners will see there are certain universals here. You just uh, expressed it, and uh, it was an expansion kind of of what I had said about deity. It is not something that one finds only in one tradition. And yet I realize that you know each tradition has its metaphors for how it speaks of the divine. But I would say the kind of thing you expressed is, uh, is universal, and all people have to look for that. One thing I want to, if I may, emphasize is, you know, in my tradition, there's an idea that God as creator uh, limited the divine self to make possible the existence of everything else. Um, and if that's the case, there's going to be evil in the world if God is somewhat self-limiting 
But there's also going to be freedom allowed to the highest species, namely human beings. And with freedom comes choice and decision-making and action or inaction. So uh, if we're going to connect to this uh, quantum field of existence and being, uh, it has with it a call to responsibility to us. Well, speaking of that, as as you talk about that individuality, you um, you spoke earlier a little bit about metaphor. We'll go deeper into that in a moment. But um, you use a metaphor when you were traveling with your wife in Iceland, yes. and you use a wet metaphor of a waterfall. And I think that this really kind of speaks of what you're just saying there. We were, you know, there aren't uh, many places in the world I've been to that I want to go back a second time because there's so much to see. But uh, Iceland is certainly one of those places. And uh, not very far out of Reykjavik, there's an area called the Golden Circle. And one of the sites to see is Gulfus Falls. It's not a Niagara Falls. It's not a Victoria Falls. It's smaller, but it's powerful. And it's the confluence of several rivers going down a very steep canyon. And, you know, you can see how that mighty water shapes the canyon. And you can see little uh, mists of water flying above the main stream and being in the air and existing for a couple of seconds before it falls back and returns to the water. Uh, It is that water that melts uh, rocks and creates minerals in it and that makes possible uh, the growth of plants along the side. And to me, that metaphor or that that, uh, waterfall is a metaphor for what we're talking about as God or the divine, not only as the source of all being, but the unifier of all existence. And then those those droplets that you're talking about, that's the individual self that exists momentarily. I would I would say so. I mean, let's face it, uh, even if you live to be 85 or 90, that's momentarily in the grand geology of time. Uh, but we get to be individuals for a short time. But woe unto us if we forget we're connected to the big river. Exactly, exactly. And going going back to that communal that we spoke about a little bit earlier, communal gathering together. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of um, the the power of praying together uh, communally. I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Okay. Well, uh, to me, it's absolutely key. I mean, it is possible to pray on one's own and to pray one's own thoughts and feelings. Communal prayer, regardless of what religious tradition you're in, Uh, has a structure or an aesthetic, let's say, to it uh, that organizes it and leads from point A to B to C. Um, And it has a value system. So when I am in a communal service, I am sharing a long tradition. In the case of Judaism, uh, probably our prayer book reached its, um, its structure probably by the third century. Um, Before prayer, there was sacrificial animal worship, and uh, that's no more, thank goodness. But um, uh, the idea of communal prayer, you know, was pretty well set by the third century. So 
when we pray, we are using the same words our ancestors did. That means there's a vertical communal connection between ancient times and modern. But also when we pray with our fellow congregants, whether in our synagogue or synagogues around the world, we are saying the same prayers. That's a horizontal connection in the present. And it's very uh, bolstering when you take the time to realize that you are the latest link in an ancient chain, but you're also part of a network that goes on now. Let me add, Justine, in our tradition, we have um, two elements with regard to prayer. One is called uh, keva. Keva means something which is fixed or routinized. So what's keva? It's going to services traditionally, and I'm not saying every Jew does this, three times a day and on the Sabbath and holidays and so forth. Uh, liberal Jews tend to be Sabbath worshipers more than all of that. But going to a certain place at a certain time with a fixed liturgy, that's what's keva set, and you can always count on it. But how do you respond to it? That's the other side of the coin, something called kavana, which means directing the mind, directing the heart. And it's what you bring to the keva, your own spirit, that um, together lifts up the whole worship experience. Now, you know, there are times where I don't feel particularly like going to synagogue on Sabbath morning, <laughs> but if I go, I realize I'm there for other people as well as myself, and that lifts me up, and, and I feel better. Um, in the book, I talk about a prayer in our tradition that praises God for reviving the dead. It goes back 2,000 years. Um, and I say very clearly, I do not personally believe in biological resurrection of dead material. I think it's a metaphor for the idea that God gives us the internal strength to renew ourselves. Sometimes we feel little moments of death when we are disappointed or discouraged or what have you, but we have as much the impulse to pray within us as the impulse to renew ourselves or to renew a relationship. And I think part of the purpose of communal worship is to uh, sustain that impulse to uh, revive ourselves or to help revive others. And, and when, when you talk about those set prayers, I'm reminded, and you, as you said, it might go back to the third century, that these prayers, these particular Jewish prayers, uh, but there are there are other prayers that are done, uh, Islamic prayers, or or there's uh, Hindu prayers, or Taoist prayers, or or Buddhist prayers, or you know that go back hundreds of thousands of years in Correct. in some cases, and and millions of people have repeated these prayers, and uh, there's a I'm convinced, and that there's a field of the energy around the repetition of these prayers and speaking them again in these set forms, even though it might feel boring, as, as you might mention in your book or, or in our conversation, we're tapping into a field of energy that 
that is enlivening. That's my feeling. I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things, Justine, I mentioned in the book is um, when I'm in Jerusalem and I go to a particular synagogue, um, a great-grandfather of mine who I never met, but uh, who had a love for the land of Israel, is sort of sitting in the seat next to me because I'm four generations down and I'm there sort of fulfilling a dream he had. I'm here with Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he is the author of I Am My Prayer, a memoir and guide for Jews and seekers. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and you're telling a story of being in Jerusalem and your great-grandfather, are you saying? Yes. Well, let me back up. Okay. Uh, He was uh, born in a town called Kempen in what was, I think, Prussia then. Today, it's in Poland. It's called Kepno. And uh, he came to the United States about 1870. Uh, somebody from Turkish Palestine uh, once came into his store and sold him a a book between two olive wood covers, and the front was painted with a picture of Jerusalem. And inside, the left-hand page had a pressed flower, and the right-hand side was a watercolor of where the flower came from in the land of Israel. And it was a beautiful book. My grandmother inherited it. She gave it to me. I gave it to one of my sons. But um, I just had the impression that my great-grandfather, Simon Cohn, had a bond or a connection to the land of Israel, as Jews have had for 2,000 years. So as I say, I can't help but be aware when I'm sitting in that particular synagogue in Jerusalem of his presence. Now, what generated this part of our discussion was uh, asking me about the praying in community with prayers that might be 2,500 uh, years old. Um, it's certainly there. It's not automatic. You know, one has to go and be aware that one is not uh, an isolate, one is part of a chain of tradition, and it enriches the prayer experience. So in this way of being together in community, you also mention how uh, even if we go, and I think this is also in your book, even if we go and we're not, okay, I'm tired or whatever, right. when we go, we're not only going for ourselves, we're going also for our, our fellow participants, that to be there is more than just for ourselves. It's for others as well. And and we can lift them up and they lift us up. Absolutely. And by the way, let me just say, 
you know, in terms of the title, A Guide for Jews and Seekers, the and seekers part is to say that there are things that are absolutely universal. So in Albuquerque, I've had a relationship over the years with Hoffmantown Baptist Church. It is a humongous church of, I don't know, thousands of families. But what I've observed when I've gone there to speak as a a friendliness and an outreach people have for one another, and you have got to leave that church uh, feeling very good. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, my synagogue congregation strives to convey some of that warmth as well. So uh, there's no question about what you're saying. Justine, you haven't asked me, but if, if you were to ask me, how come this communal sense resonates with me? I have a theory about it. I can't prove it. But when I was a little kid, three, four, five years old, we would go up from my hometown, Los Angeles, about an hour's north to Ventura, California, you know all those places, to my great-grandparents' home. Now, the great-grandfather of whom I spoke was already deceased before I was born, but my great-grandmother was there, and her children, my, my grandmother's sisters, and some of the cousins. And we would go up maybe once a month on a Sunday, and we'd be in the this huge backyard and there'd be barbecues going and it felt like, I don't know quite how to put it. Like it was my tribe, Mm -hmm. this family. And I, I really think the warmth of family um, prepares one for the possibility of the warmth of congregational life, Mm -hmm. or if you want tribal life or, or national life for that matter. But uh, it, it certainly opened me to that connection. Well, you're speaking of um, going to the camaraderie and what you felt in the Baptist church. Um, In my spiritual lineage, I grew up Episcopalian, then I became Southern Baptist, then I became a Jehovah's Witness, and then I became a Buddhist, and then I became, I don't know what now, (laughs) I mean, Unity Church. I mean, I've kind of covered all the bases, but... But I want to say something about the Baptist Church and why when I was living in the South, Mm -hmm. and it was the music, it was that enthusiastic music and the energy and the music. And for me, uh, spirituality and music is very connected and when when i hear when i attend a jewish service and there's a cantor there and i hear the chants with this beautiful voice or or if i hear um i've not been there to hear with my own ears but to hear on the internet the call to prayer the islamic call to prayer and the uh Mazin uh, calling out this loudspeaker that's permeating the uh, community. It just moves my heart. Uh, and so I'd love for you to, uh, whatever you can say about the power of music in whatever liturgy is used in any tradition. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the muazin and the call to prayer in Islam because my wife, Susan, and I had a wonderful experience. We were in Israel, and we hiked up Mount Tabor, 
At the top of Mount Tabor is a church, and I'm not sure what happened in uh, in the Gospels that there's a church on Mount Tabor. But so we climbed to the top, and we're overlooking the Jezreel Valley, and down below us uh, is uh, the Arab village of Daburia. It was noontime. And I'm sorry, it wasn't just one Arab village. It was three different ones kind of close to each other. Well, at noon, the muezzin in one town started the call to worship. About a minute later, the muezzin in the next town, and a minute later in the third town. And they were kind of staggered, but all going on at the same time. It was very spiritual and very uplifting to hear this this blending while we're standing on a mountain in Israel on the property of a church. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> um, I agree with you. Music is absolutely key to a sense of spirituality and community. Now, in the uh, Orthodox Jewish synagogue, there is a lot of uh, chanting that has certain melodic modes to it. And sometimes they have a cantor. In the more liberal synagogues, uh, you have a cantor. And uh, there's a lot of music that is very singable. And I think it's important to find a balance between the showmanship, if you will, of a cantor uh, and the participation of a congregation. There is room for both. But Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is one of the great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, once said, prayer rises on wings of song. And I could not agree more. And some of my closest colleagues aren't rabbis, but cantors who uh, have done so much to lift me up. You know, uh, speaking about singing, and you, you talked about a little bit about language, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about, for me, the use of mundane language in mm -hmm. a liturgy is um, not as inspiring <laughs> to me as a more ritualistic for example, the Catholic Church kind of moved away from the Latin to then English uh, right, in, right. in some countries or Spanish or whatever the local language was. And for me, in my case, the Episcopal Church, I grew up in a high Episcopal Church uh -huh, and where uh -huh. there was a, the priest would chant the prayers. And it was like, I still find that ringing in my ears. And when I go to an Episcopal Church today, I go... It's just devoid of that something that is is um, magical, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. or or Buddhist. Uh, I don't understand Sanskrit, but when I I still can do some chants in Sanskrit, and they move me not because of the content, but because of what I'm tapping into. Does any of that make sense? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> Justine. You know, I belong to a uh, a men's book group. And uh, they were kind enough to pick my book for last night and to uh, for me to lead a discussion. They didn't know I was it was a rehearsal for today, <laughs> but but um, that subject came up because uh, in in my section of Jewish tradition, reform, no ed at the end, reform, which is the most liberal, we have moved over the last fifty years to the use of. Uh, basically vernacular English. Uh, the prayer book I grew up with as a kid was thee and thou and wouldest and shouldest and mayest and all of that. 
Um, the fact is that for a lot of people, uh, that older, more formal liturgical language just feels artificial and it doesn't resonate. And so in a way, as my own rabbi once taught me, I kind of have to go where the people are. But I could go back to the prayer book I grew up with that was published uh, originally in the 1890s and republished in the 1940s. Um, I could go back to that language and have no problem. Yeah. I'll tell you a secret. When I first came to Albuquerque, and this is in the 1970s, my predecessor brought in the new prayer book for the Reform Judaism. And he did it because he said, better I should be criticized, meaning himself, than the new rabbi, which I appreciated. But naturally, some of the old folks were complaining. They missed the old prayer book. So I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Once a month, we'll use the old prayer book with that kind of formal language. And if you keep coming, we'll keep using it once a month. And that worked for three months. And that was it. And uh, we never had it again. It's a tough question because it depends what you're used to, what you need. The other thing, Justine, is the use of what I call creative liturgy, writing one's own prayers uh, for community services. They usually would be in the vernacular, but the goal would be to say something that touches people in a meaningful way. Right. Right. That's that's lovely. And and you respond to that kind of authenticity, don't you, when when you feel it, when somebody is praying in, like I know in the Unity Church, uh, there are spontaneous prayer. People are asked to pray, like to end the service or whatever. And, and when somebody really is authentically present to their own prayer, it's very, very moving. It just really be inspiring. I have to pay tribute to the Protestant tradition. I can't tell you how many times I've been someplace where at the drop of a hat, someone's been asked to offer a prayer and it's thoughtful and it's fluent and it's very much a part of their tradition. Uh, when the minister turns to me and says, Rabbi, will you offer a prayer? Uh, it's a little scary at first. Somehow it comes out, but it's not as much in my tradition. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I'm here with Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he is the author of I Am My Prayer, A Memoir and Guide for Jews and Seekers. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with 
Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he's the author of I Am My Prayer, a memoir and guide for Jews and seekers. And um, one of the prayers that you mention in your book that just so deeply moved me, and I shared it with all of my friends because it just was so important to me as I read it. In some ways, this is a prayer from uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlaff, and he was born in 1772. And this prayer has been passed down. And in some ways, for me, it addresses those people who are in distress zones, such as the Middle East or or Syria or Yemen, or even neighborhoods in the U.S. where regular violence occurs. And and it actually, also this prayer for me, includes um, the devastation of climate change. And and it um, taps into the connecting to God or the infinite presence through being in nature. And it conveys a sense that the divine permeates and unifies the natural world in which we're each apart. And I just want to read a part of it because it, it, for me, it's so powerful. Uh, it starts off about uh, going outdoors and it just when i when i read that part of it i just thought how many people are in danger just by walking out of their door just just that in itself so i just wanted to highlight that part and here's a fair how, how about just being the danger of being indoors in front of the computer screen all day <laughs> yeah well there you go there you go for sure so here's here's uh, part of the prayer Master of the universe, grant me the ability to be alone. May it be my custom to go outdoors each day among the trees and grass, among all growing things. And there may I be alone and enter into prayer to talk to him, the one to whom I belong. May I express there everything in my heart. And may all the foliage of the field, all grasses, trees, and plants, may they all awake at my coming to send the power of their life into the words of my prayer, so that my prayer and speech are made whole through the life and spirit of growing things, which are made as one by their transcendent source." There's something about that prayer, Paul, that just moved me so much about being out in the natural world, using the growing things to amplify prayer and to remind us to be in prayer and that we are connected to all of this. Absolutely. Well, first, a sort of a, an obvious comment, which is back in the uh, 18th century, uh, when uh, most of the Jews of Europe lived in small rural villages, wasn't so hard to uh, go out and be in nature. You were pretty well surrounded by it. But the part that he adds, that may the living spirit of plants lift up my prayer, um, goes back to this feeling I have that not only is, the God, is God the source of all existence, but God is the source of oneness of all things. That the spirit in me and in the dandelion and my dog or whatever, 
uh, are all are all there. And you know something, I have the feeling, Justine, that for us moderns, this is more necessary than ever uh, to get out and to be among uh, green things and fresh air, fresh as it can be these days, uh, is uh, is spiritually very necessary. I I'm of the opinion in Jewish tradition. There are three ways that we draw close to the, to the divine. One is through nature. And I might add that on our holiday calendar, on the Hebrew calendar, three of our major holidays, um, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, are all harvest festivals originally. Now, later they got historical meanings as well appended to them but they're connected to the harvest seasons in the land of Israel. Um, Every day in worship, uh, after the call to worship in the morning, there's a prayer that praises God for creation and light. In the evening, there's a prayer after the call to worship, praising God for sun, moon, and stars and the changing of the seasons. So there's a real consciousness in my tradition that he picks up in this, by the way, the other two connections beside nature is study of scripture as a way to draw closer to God, not only because of the idea that scripture is the divine word, and I think that needs defining, but uh, also because when you and I and 10 other people sit in a room and study a biblical passage and connect to each other, the presence of God is among us. And the third thing is something I keep referring to, and that is being in community as another way to, to find God. But Nachman of Bratislav's piece is absolutely touching, even two and a half centuries later. Yes, yes. Well, uh, speaking about um, study of scripture and in the Jewish tradition, there's uh, there are prayers for thanks for the Torah and all the great spiritual, uh, there are so many wonderful spiritual texts, uh, the Islamic Quran and Buddhist Sutra, the yes. Hindu Bhagavad Gita, Taoism, Tao Te Ching, Shintoism, uh, records of ancient matters. Uh, you know, so to be thankful for these inspiring texts that have been handed down through the ages is I, I, I love it that the, in the Jewish um, uh, liturgy or service there is a prayer thankful for the Jewish texts. Well, you know what? Indeed, there is. Uh, those are our texts, and those are the expression, let me just say, and I don't know if I'm going to upset listeners or not, I am not one who literally believes that this is the word of God. It is the words of human beings in community who have sought the divine, and that's their way to respond to it. Uh, But having said that, of course, I love my tradition. But, you know, we have a prayer, and this is a modern prayer that's been around maybe for 50, 60 years in our prayer book, where we say we give thanks for the sages and teachers of all peoples, because every, every tradition, and again, there may be Christians and Muslims who disagree with me, what I said about our own text being uh, really of human origin, I would say about the Quran, I would say about the, the New Testament, um, but uh uh, I can appreciate the seeking and the answers that those texts uh, come up with and teach their followers. And I might say one more quick thing, Justine. 
the shape of Jewish sacred literature goes from the core, which is Torah, the five books of Moses, the rest of the Bible, uh, the expansion of that in the Talmud, and then other writings. Well, the Quran doesn't stand alone. The Quran has the uh, Hadith and other works that talk about the life of uh, Muhammad. And certainly uh, there are Christian writings beyond the Bible. So uh, it's exciting to see the way people keep wrestling in every generation. I wanted to ask you uh, something uh there's a word that I think all of us are familiar with. It's a Jewish uh, Jewish term, and it's the term shalom. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked me because the root of that means to be whole or to fulfill or be complete. So we translate it as peace, but the trouble with the word peace from the Latin pax means an absence of war. Shalom is much more than an absence of war. It is to establish a time or a state of wholeness and fulfillment within yourself, within your relations, and within your community. So if you give, it's kind of a blessing if you say shalom, you're, you're blessing people? You're wishing, yes, you're wishing that. Well, look, shalom you know, is used in the vernacular for hello, for goodbye. And, you know, there's an old joke. The reason why Jews use the same word for hello and goodbye is we never know whether we're coming or going. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in a way, and, you know, uh, uh, Arabic has uh, the same salam. Uh-huh. It's simply right. a cognate. Uh, Hebrew and, right. and Arabic are cognate. Maybe uh, namaste might be I honor the divine within you uh, is is part Absol- is part of that tradition. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's a very or, important term to remind. Us. Aloha in Hawaiian also is very similar to that. I've I've I didn't know of, that. Yes, I yes, didn't know it, that. it goes. It's it's a very spiritual sort of uh, greeting, uh, much deeper than just hi, how are you? It's but much you see, deeper. When the text says. Usually we hear it translated this way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew says you should love your neighbor. He is like yourself. And if I recognize the commonality that we have as human beings, that's how I love you. How beautifully said, beautifully said. Paul, it's just been just wonderful to have this deep discussion about prayer and to learn a, a, some some little bit about Judaism and your practice as as a rabbi and and what you've been doing all these years. And I, I thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today, Justine. Thank you for having me. I truly am honored. Thank you. It's been my honor as well. Rabbi Paul J. Citron is the author of I Am My Prayer, a memoir and guide for Jews and seekers. And if you want to know more about him, he doesn't have a website as yet. Maybe someday you will, but you can Google him, Rabbi Paul J. Citron, and he spells his name C-I-T-R-I-N, Rabbi Paul J. Citron. Um, just Google him and you'll find many references. And um, I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening 
to New Dimensions. This is program number 3732. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.